WFAE's David Borex has the story. Tariq Bakari and Larkin Eggleston call their podcast R&D in the QC. Eggleston says they hope to reach people who may not pay attention to the council. Eggleston is 35 and a Democrat. Bakari is a 37-year-old Republican. Despite their political differences, they bonded on the campaign trail in part over their beards, says Bakari. The beards themselves are what truly united us in the beginning. They hope to be an example of how to debate productively across the political divide. Episode 35, we've got rezonings, revaluation, chairwoman of the RNC, Ronna McDaniel, and Laura Trump join us, as well as Clayton Wilcox. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, children of all ages. Welcome to R&D in the QC, episode 35. Bingo! How many more times are you going to say bingo? Bingo! Larkin, I am so, I am just jacked for this podcast tonight, dude. Episode 35 may go down in history as our most listened to yet. What do you think? Only time will tell. Only time can tell, but uh, we, we have some some really special stuff in this episode. It has been a busy day, and so... We will tease a couple things for segment two and three. Yes, a three-segment episode. We, we haven't had one of the, I mean, that was back when we used to like really care about the podcast. <laughs> We'd do like three segments. I'd, I'd Young, eager, and naive. I'd weave in different music, kind of like, you know. Oh, like, I forgot. You used to I do used theme to music. I used to actually like spend a lot of time. Then we're just, you know, after 35 episodes, you kind of, we've just been using the same Rage song the entire time. You should get back to that theme of music. That was should, a nice should I touch. Do that? that was back when we, we were young and dumb. Uh, there's got to be something good for our third segment as far as themed music goes, something school related. Ooh. So you well, let's talk about think the, on that. What, what do we have in so store? In, so in chronological order, we'll tease segments two and three and then get into to some of uh, what we want to talk about. Let's be quick, though, because segments two and three are the best. All right. So one of the first things that we did this morning was we went to the convention center and we were there for an announcement around the dates of the RNC. Do you remember the dates now? I do now. Because you didn't yes. write when you heard In them. In segment two, you'll hear me uh, forget the dates, but it is August 24th through August 27th of 2020. That's a Monday through a Thursday. It's uh, The DNC will be in July. The Summer Olympics go from July into August, and then the, this will be after. Uh, so we were there uh, as were... Uh, a number of Republican and Democratic elected officials, current and former, and leadership from the RNC, including their national chair, the national chair of the Republican National Committee, uh, and Ronald Romney McDaniel and Laura Trump, uh, President Trump's daughter-in-law. We were able to, to pull the, both of them aside and do an interview with them after the announcement. That'll be segment two. It got plugged in the Business Journal. It did. That was pretty cool. Shout out, Eric uh, Spanberg. Thank and I you. and I will say it was prompted by not one either one of us, surprisingly, but Ron and Romney McDaniel saying, "When are you guys going to have me on the podcast?" And we to said, which we "Right said, now, right now." <laughs> uh, and then when her assistant or handler uh, looked over at me and said, "Is Laura or is I'm think I'm sure she said, is Miss Trump going to be joining you?" And I said. Yes. Yes. Yes, indeed. Uh, so though she had no that idea, was, she was pulled I mean, into. Listen, it. man, it's already been recorded. It's in the books from earlier today. But one, that's that was incredible. A great experience. I'm sure you you share that too. And two, like we always, you know, thrive and strive to do with this podcast R and D in the QC to bring our listeners along with us to the things the the most special from 
flying in the Osprey crazy helicopter thing to chilling with the RNC chairwoman and Laura Trump. That's going to be pretty incredible. I probably wasn't quite as excited as you were. You were super pumped. Uh, if you, you know you were. If I was hanging out with uh, Sasha or Malia and Tom Perez, I'd probably that's the excitement level that you probably had today. And I can appreciate that and respect that. But the fact of the matter is, and, and I've said this before, I think part of it, part of, of my being there, of, of Mayor Lyles being there, of Braxton's being there, even though he obviously voted against the convention, but he was there today. I think it's transitioning from whether, you know, whether you agreed with it or not, it, we want to make sure it's, it's the best it can be for Charlotte. Uh, I repeated that today in, in several interviews when people were asking me about my attendance today and asking Braxton the same question. Uh, it's about making sure it's the best it can be for Charlotte. And the fact of the matter is that cultivating relationships with people like the chair of the National Committee, while we disagree on probably damn near everything politically, gives me and Braxton and the mayor and others a seat at the table as these plans are made, as this convention is is kind of formed and executed. And so I think for us to be able to do best by Charlotte in this convention coming here, we've got to have a seat at the table. We've got to build trust in those relationships, regardless of our political differences. So um, it, it was a good opportunity. It was an interesting interview. People will hear that in segment two. Mm. Segment three, another high-profile guest, local celebrity. The good doctor. Superintendent Dr. Clayton Wilcox uh, will come on to talk about his immediate reaction. This was just hours after the RNC announcement to those dates and how they'll possibly impact CMS scheduling, yeah. uh, but also to talk about two of the hot button issues of the last couple months for CMS, which is the water testing that led to some um, some measures of, of, of lead, and there's been a, an outcry and probably a lot of misunderstanding around that, and then also the Municipal Concerns Act that was passed in response to the General Assembly's allowance of municipalities to create their own charter school systems. That has been a huge um, political football of late, and he'll talk about his perspective yeah. on both of those. And and just like the city manager, the superintendent who works with the elected school board, you know, it, it's interesting to watch him kind of navigate those questions because he can't be like you and I, where we just kind of let her rip and give it what we really think. He's got to kind of balance a thousand different angles. So it was interesting to hear him talk about two very divisive hot button issues, but was was also equally as as interesting hearing him kind of, you know, a couple hours tops removed from the announcement of the dates kind of just respond to, okay, well, CMS is in 2020. We'll just be coming back to school at, at a time where we'll be having a, a massive amount of people and safety concerns, but controls to make sure they're all managed well, all kind of in play at the same time. So it's a really great perspective in how his organization will be working alongside us for the next two years to make sure all that goes well. All right. So on to uh, our segment, we uh, had two meetings tonight. We had what would have been our normal meeting tonight, a strategy session. We always have on the first Monday that was at four o'clock today. And then at five 30, we had the continuation of last week's zoning meeting that we were unable to complete uh, due to the heavy lift of some of those hearings. Plus, last earlier week. today, we had my co-chair, our intergovernmental relations committee meeting. I don't, I don't think we need to spend too much time there, but we're in the process of getting all the different topics from Braxton brought up slumlord related uh, legislation. Um, we talked about, the affordable housing legislation. And then next week, we're going to be talking about things ranging from uh, economic development committee meeting uh, items that are of interest for our legislative agenda to things I've been talking about with 5G and, uh, and other topics there. So we got a lot going on there. 
for anyone who's going to tune in on Facebook Live or possibly attend the meeting, that'll be two weeks from today. Two weeks. Not one week. Um, but so in the strategy session, we talked about the county revaluation where uh, people who li have lived here for more than seven years will remember in 2011, there was a revaluation done by the county. Uh, it did not go real well. And uh, <laughs> people probably still remember that if they were here. So in this case, the county tax assessor has been seemingly more proactive. Obviously, you and I weren't nearly as, as intimately involved or aware of what was going on in 2011 until we were probably like everybody else getting our bill. But, um, and, and mine was actually wrong. I had to appeal mine. So I remember it quite, quite vividly. But in this case, they said they were about, I think about 75% of the way done with, um, with their, what was the word he used? I'll just, Stuff. there's their value. We'll just say evaluation, Things. their evaluation of about 75% of the properties in Mecklenburg County. Uh, the average residential increase in value was, I think, 39%. And the average commercial value was, I believe, around 71%. Yeah, see, and that's what concerned me the most. I, I didn't really chime in, but I'm, I have some offline questions there, which is if, if, we, if we operate with a revenue-neutral tax kind of uh, uh, approach after this revaluation, there's only, as far as I understand it, there's only one tax rate right? So you set that, it applies equally to residential and commercial. So if, if, if it's revenue neutral, in effect, I guess the way I'm, I'm interpreting what I saw tonight is some residential folks may actually get a tax cut out of this, but it looks like commercial is, is ultimately going to get a, a, a pretty significant tax increase given that real estate tax value values and, and, and property valuations have done okay, but commercials ha has gone gangbusters over the last seven, eight years. Well, it depends on what part of town you're in. So if you're in a part of town that has not seen as much growth, economic development, investment, um, and you come in kind of under that average, then you might be one of the ones that sees a, even if your property value has increased, if it hasn't increased, but a certain amount, you might still see a net tax, uh, lowering in in the cases of a lot of the districts or a lot of the neighborhoods particularly in my district and, and probably yours as well where values have increased above average Definitely mine. then it's going to be obviously a, a tax increase so it, it is very complicated because you lower the tax rate and yet for some people that's a, a, a lower tax bill for some people it's a higher tax bill my way my wager based on what i saw tonight with some of the heat maps they showed and things like that is once again District six is going to be disproportionately impacted with tax increases. Sounds good. Yeah, I'm sure. Well, district one is too. Yeah, no, I mean, in, in all seriousness. Areas. But I mean, this is the problem right now. It, it it seems like neutral. And then once again, just like it was with stormwater rate increases over the last decade and other things, my district bears a disproportionate brunt of that. And we get less of the capital spend, less of, of, of the, 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 those types of elements um, back in return. It's, it's very frustrating to those of us who live in those areas. I'm sure you agree. Oh, yes. Um, no, I mean, a lot of, you know, I've got half of Uptown in my district. And, uh, and then also a lot of those neighborhoods that have seen so much change and so much investment in the last seven, eight years because as people have moved back in towards town and as people have moved along transit lines and a lot of that's in my district. So, you know, I think there will be 
certainly will be above average in terms of that 39% that residential has increased will be above that. And I think even on the commercial front, uh, there will certainly be areas in, in my district and yours that probably exceed that 71% average that they're looking at right now. So, you know, people will get their bills. I think the timeline said that they will get their bills probably in the beginning of the calendar year 2019. Uh, not their bills. I'm sorry. They'll get their assessment in early calendar year 2019. There will be an opportunity for people to file any sort of appeals or um, seek clarity on that assessment before the bills would be sent out in July. So you'll have a period of time there where by by a computer, by phone, by walk-in, by um, I don't remember what else carrier pigeon. I don't know what else you can do, but carrier pigeon. Yes, um, I'm pretty sure that was one. Of they're going to have they're they're far more focused on the customer service opportunities. Uh, and avenues that people have access to because yeah, that, I hope so, that was one of the ones fell off yeah, last time in, in 2011 we all laughed but the guy said well everything was going fine until we sent the bills out <laughs> it's like well yeah <laughs> until no kidding. we told people <laughs> um, oh and then people started calling in like me who, who i knew just for a fact that my my valuation of something was wrong with it and it was uh and it was not a, a very easy process and so when you have that many people hopefully there'll be a lot more accuracy and one of the things he demonstrated the potential for much more accuracy with was the amount of property transactions that have taken place in the last three years is something on the order of like five times as many as had taken place prior to the 2011 revaluation. Um, and so that gives you a lot more data to use. So hopefully the first thing that comes in your mailbox will be far more accurate maybe than the one in 2011 that will lower the number of appeals uh, and people that are fighting it. And, and the whole process will be far smoother. I, this I didn't know the person who did it in 2011, but um, I've seen this guy give his presentation. who's doing it now at a couple of my community meetings. And he seems to have kind of thought everything out and, and really have a plan in place. And I, I feel pretty good that this is going to go, uh, exponentially smoother than the one in 2011 do you uh are you prepared right now to join me in a pledge for the 2019 budget to not make it revenue neutral but to actually reduce taxes net reduction well no it would be absurd to make that statement when we haven't seen what a revenue neutral tax rate would be well first of all you know going under a revenue neutral tax rate means we're gonna have to figure out what all is going on the cutting board and we done we, Mark, yeah. si go ahead and sign me up oh, for that right you got, now you got one maybe two votes for for that philosophy i mean exactly but what's wrong with that philosophy you're well, telling me with what you've well, seen we saw in the last much... year here you couldn't find a way to cut some some stuff i brought cuts to the table this year that was i mean there are i'm not saying there aren't things that that could be trimmed but nothing significant enough that we would be looking at going under revenue neutral tax rate now mm. what now i think there might be validity in advocating for a revenue neutral tax rate um and i might support that but again without having all the data and without knowing what that tax rate would be how it will burden different parts of our city and, and the commercial versus residential components um i wouldn't wouldn't dare. i'm gonna mark you down for a yes yeah, you can put me down right. as a definitive no until i have data to back it up my trusted that's sidekick how, is with me on that's this how one. i make my I decisions it. Not just, uh, All right, not just whimsy and speculation. We got a lot more cool stuff to talk about on this episode. Anything else strike you as uh, interesting today? Or Most of the rezonings that were heavy lifts we did last week, which is why we were able to get done in a, a pretty timely way today. But one fun one in my district, right along, right beside the Parkwood Light Rail Station, um, we've got some people petitioning to build a brewery. And uh, our, our, friend Popcorn to approve. our friend Popcorn Phipps, uh, wondered aloud how many breweries there are over there and and the answer is clearly not enough mm, so never uh, is. right by the light rail right by the greenway 
will be excited in the in the coming year or so to have another brewery underway over in that part of the part of the neighborhood and uh in optimus park and that was the only one that i thought was particularly interesting today uh, well we did have one that from a uh technical standpoint and maybe a case study standpoint was interesting where a wedding venue mm. out in east charlotte that, was that has been yeah. operated for 10 years in not in compliance with its zoning which is residential zoning is now seeking to uh, correct course and get zoned properly for the business they've been conducting there for 10 years. A lot years. of strange questions in that one. One, um, we're, what, what is the penalty for operating non-compliant for 10 years? Two, it came out because Dimple asked the question, I drove past and saw a for sale sign, are you selling it? Which then brought forward, I don't know if everyone knew that or not, but brought forward the question, are we essentially rezoning it so the person who buys it will actually buy it because the, the use will be worth more? Uh, you know, it, it's an assistant, assistant manager, uh, Deborah Campbell, said that wasn't the case. That chronologically, the request to rezone had been put in before it was listed for sale. Now, that doesn't mean there hadn't potentially been conversations going on um, prior. But you know, it's a beautiful looking place. I haven't been out there before. It's called Deer Pond Plantation, and it's out off Plaza Road Extension. So, it, I mean, it it does seem like something that is appropriate where it is, but it does beg the question. Um, I think. Councilmember Driggs said, you know, I could live with this as a land use decision, but uh, he and Councilwoman Mayfield in particular voiced some concerns around what what precedent do we set for someone does something they're not supposed to do for 10 years, then comes and begs for forgiveness, and we say, oh, okay, well, here's your permission slip. Um, and so I, I do think we need to know a little bit more about that, but it doesn't seem an inappropriate use there, but by definition, it was not appropriate use. So that was kind of an interesting one from a technical standpoint. And it seemed like an interesting property. But um, other than that, they were mostly uh, pretty cut and dry tonight. Yep. So without further ado then, it's time, ladies and gentlemen. It is time to hear from our second segment guests that we are, both Larkin and I, overjoyed, over the top. You should see the look on Larkin's face right now. It is pure excitement. You could probably imagine. Pure enthusiasm. Ladies and gentlemen, let's go here from chairwoman of the RNC and Laura Trump. Who win it Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to R&D in the QC. We have a very special treat for you. Larkin, where are we standing right now? We are in the convention center here in downtown Charlotte, and they have just announced the dates of the 2020 Republican National Convention, which are, I've already forgotten them, I think August 21st no. to the 20, nope, no. 24th to the 27th. What so. a wonderful memory yes. my co-host here has. <laughs> wonderful. We also have two very special guests. We have Ronna McDaniel, the chairwoman of the RNC, the whole RNC. Welcome to the pod. I'm so happy to be here. Thanks for having me. This is very exciting for you, I'm sure. And we also have Laura Trump, ladies and gentlemen, the senior advisor to the president. This is also very exciting. How are you? Welcome. I'm great. And I want to clarify, senior advisor to the president's campaign. Yes. I don't work in the White House. No Let's White clarify. House. Perfect. Perfect. This wonderful memory my co-host here has. Yes. Well, you know what? At least we're, I remember we're both dates. listening a little bit in there. Perfect. So what, 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 what was today about, first of all, Rana? Today was setting the date 
to make sure that we can hit the ground running to make the best convention ever for the people of Charlotte. We're gonna use Charlotte vendors. We wanna highlight what a great city this is. It's growing at a rapid pace, and this is gonna be an opportunity to highlight it at the national level and at the global level. So you said also in some words about uh, thinking about the uh, the, the hurricane uh, aftermath and what's going on. Laura, you, you toured the site specifically. What did you see and why was that important enough and what you saw to bring up today to make sure it's on the top of everyone's minds? I think, uh, first of all, I was shocked by the utter devastation that so many people actually suffered in this state. And, you know, we saw that my hometown of Wrightsville Beach was, thank God, spared from the storm. And that's where a lot of people were focused. They weren't really focused inland. And I, I toured Brunswick County on Friday. And I mean, people have lost everything. There are people that will never move back into their homes. And I was really touched by the community actually rallying together the volunteers that really have come from across the country to help support you know their their fellow citizens in this country and um, I just don't want that to be forgotten it's it's easy to forget when people aren't focused on it when you know the 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 news outlets are not directly in our state anymore so um, it just felt like the the right thing to do being that I'm here in North Carolina yeah, absolutely. So one thing y'all started to hit the ground pretty quickly after the vote was uh, or the the announcement was made that Charlotte would be hosting to build a pool of volunteers. Is there an opportunity? I know the convention chair mentioned in the press conference today about that she really wants that volunteer energy to be focused on the recovery efforts right now before it turns to focusing on planning and executing this convention. Is there an opportunity through that network you've already built of volunteers to mobilize them and get word out to them uh, and how they can help down in eastern North Carolina? Absolutely. And we have staff on the ground here in North Carolina with the RNC, and we were checking on them throughout the hurricane to make sure sure they were okay. But we have asked our volunteers and, and sent them out to make sure that they're helping in the community. That's first and foremost. The convention is two years away, so help your neighbors first, and then there'll be time to come and be part of this convention, which we want everyone to get involved in, especially young kids, high school kids. What an opportunity to see this in your, in your backyard and to learn about this process that makes our country so great and unique from any other country in the world. So um, one more question for me, and then Larkin, one, one more for you. My, my question is, one of the reasons I'm really excited about this convention in general is at the time where politics seems so divisive nationally, and sometimes we have trouble with the media, and depending on what perspective you're coming from, right? But uh, from my perspective, it seems troubling at times. And then you look at where we are in Charlotte, where we're the first city municipality that has you know, a, a majority of millennials just elected, under 40 representatives. Now, regardless, a lot of them are Democrats, but there is a Republican in there. And I think this is a new era of, of an, an opportunity to show these young millennials, you know, directly in our town, not from multiple sources in the news, but directly what it's about being in, in involved in the RNC, a convention, being a Republican. And we have an opportunity to show them our principles and, and our open natured, you know, bigger tent environment. Do you think this is an opportunity for us to do something special with the new generation that honestly gets a lot of their their messages from liberal leaning, you know, last week tonight with John Oliver, all the fun stuff I like to watch that's hilarious that doesn't do me any favors. Not fair and balanced news outlets like Fox News. Exactly. Well, that's right down the middle. Right. 
I think your city council is a great example of millennials uh, running for office, getting involved. We've seen that across the country. But yes, it is an opportunity. First of all, we need to start coming together more as a country. And we can talk about the things where we agree. Right now, Larkin and Tark agree. We want Charlotte to do well during this convention. We want local vendors used. This is a great time to highlight the city. Those are the things we can agree on. Let's start there. And let's not always focus on the things that divide us. And that's what leaders need to do. And I think the millennial generation uh, can set the example for that. Laura, what do you think? Do you think the millennial generation, what we are, you know, espousing in our principles, that it will resonate? Well, thanks to Kanye, maybe. Um, <laughs> <laughs> what I will say, honestly, we don't is like Kanye. <laughs> <laughs> I, I've, I've been very impressed with the nonpartisan nature of this entire process. Uh, the fact that the mayor and her entire team has been so welcoming and and really such a pleasure to work with. It's it's a great example, I think, of the direction we need to go in this country. We don't have to agree on everything, but we can be civil and kind to one another. We can hear each other out and do what's best for places like the city of Charlotte in this instance. So um, I've been very pleased to to see that in action and to know that it still exists out there. And I think we can get back to that place. Absolutely. Larkin, final question. So my final thing is more of a request. As, as uh, I've gotten to know you, uh, Chairwoman McDaniel, and just gotten to know you, Ms. Trump, um, you and I are both natives of North Carolina. I'm from Winston-Salem. You're from Wrightsville Beach. Uh, my ask will be, while, while I know that this convention, a big part of it will be to support your nominee, support your party. Uh, I'll ask that the priority be we make sure that this is good for the city of Charlotte and, and on a larger scale, good for our home state of North Carolina. Request denied. <laughs> no, absolutely. I, I don't see how we can do anything but that. I mean, I think people are going to be so pleased to actually learn about the city of Charlotte. Every time I come back here, I'm actually blown away by the new developments I see, by the really cool restaurants and coffee shops and this and that. The, the local vendors here, as Rana has pointed out, are going to be highlighted. They're going to be put front and center in this whole experience for people. And honestly, as a North Carolinian, I could not think of a better place to host it. I, I would love to see it on Wrightsville Beach, but let's face it, we're not doing it there. <laughs> Charlotte really is the perfect place. Um, it's a, an up-and-coming city, and, um, and I'm really, really excited to see all the good that will be done here. Rana, last word from you. Well, I agree with Lara. It's a great time to highlight Charlotte. Uh, You've got a lot of southern cities that people think about going and visiting, and we want to put Charlotte in the forefront of people's minds. When they're going to the south, they say, you know what? Charlotte embodies southern hospitality. I'm from Michigan. A lot of Michiganders don't come to the Carolinas. Michiganders. (laughs) (laughs) Did not know that. I did. Michiganders do not always come to the Carolinas, uh, and you think of Atlanta, you think of Dallas. Now we want people to think of Charlotte, and that's going to be a win-win for us to host a great convention and then to highlight this great city. I always thought it was Meshaganers. Meshaganers? All right, R&D and the QC family, we are here with a special guest. First time caller, but long time listener, doctor, I'm sure. The doctor. The doctor, Clayton Wilcox, superintendent of the Charlotte Mecklenburg School System. Welcome to the show, my friend. It's great to be here with you, too. It's a real honor, I'm imagining, for you to be uh, here. I am just basking in the glow of success. Yes. 
So what's your life like right now that school is in full, like, you know, the, the full throes of the process, buses are trying to figure out where to go. Is it nuts this time of year for you? It's smoothing out a little bit, but, you know, right now in this moment, it's like spectacular that I'm here with you two guys and we're moving on. Uh, you know, honestly, school's taken off really well this year. We've had a good start to the year. Uh, for the most part, things have smoothed down. We're really struggling in transportation right now with getting on-time buses mm-hmm. everywhere, and that's likely because... Because we're running into a bus driver shortage. We've lost 90 drivers since the beginning of this year. And people don't realize that. And, and why are they leaving? They're leaving because of wages. They're going to the, 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 the transportation system here in the city. They're going to um, you know different providers in the community of, of trucking services, things like that. It's been a struggle for us. Wow, that's interesting. I, so I didn't know that. Your bus drivers, what uh, class CDL do they have to have? They have the professional CDL that, they, that, that any trucking, that anybody who hauls people would have to have. Um, and so what ends up happening to us is, you know, our starting salary is about $13 an hour, a little over $12 an hour. Um, and, you know, if you just go to work for CATS, you're going to make 15 to 16 to start. So what happens is people get their training with us. They get their license. They drive for a little while to get some on-the-road experience. And then somebody hires them away. And so that's been really exacerbated in our case right now. You know, when people talk about full employment, uh, what they don't realize is oftentimes bus drivers are people who haven't had great success in getting a full-time gig somewhere else. And so then we lose. So it's a difficult time right now. So if anyone out there in the uh, listener audience has got a CDL and is looking for some work, Dr. Wilcox has got a job for you. Absolutely. Call me now. What's your personal cell? Yeah, no, we're not giving that out. (laughs) Well, we'll give that out later. Uh, Something that just came up recently, uh, and I don't know if you've had time to dig into the ramifications of it or not. But the RNC dates have been announced. It's going to be August 24th through the 27th of 2020. Is that a tough time? Well, is, so that normally would coincide with the start of school. So what ability does the school system have or do you want to get back to us on how do you do you try to adjust the calendar so that maybe they don't overlap and you don't run into those? Um, obviously, you're going to have some – you're going to have traffic issues. You're going to have access issues. Um what are what are your thoughts on that initially? And are we breaking this news to you right now? Or no, 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 no. In fact, um, we've already reached out to our calendar committee. They're going to come in a little bit early and start to work on this, um, because quite honestly, um, it's also a late Labor Day. It's September seventh is a Labor Day, and so we couldn't come in, um, you know, after Labor Day. We'd have to come in the week before that, mm. and this that means it's really a four day week for us again. So we've been thinking about it. We're talking about it. I, I think right now one of the things that we're looking at is what's the impact on Uptown and the schools that we have you know we have first word here we have the metro school you know would it be possible just to bring those kids in later i think we're going to explore all the calendar issues and what i said to the board members earlier uh in the week uh, was that uh, my hope was we could have some resolution to at least the start date prior to the winter holidays this year so that families who want to plan can plan so we're we're, we're on it but we just don't have a decision yet or maybe you could just have the whole first week be field trips to the RNC. There you go. That what, but what what an amazing opportunity this is going to be to have this in our own. What, one of the reasons Mayor Vi Lyles keeps talking about why she's so pleased to this is that all of our students are going to get to witness this up close and personal. What's your thoughts on that angle? And what, what maybe ask might you have for those of us on the host committee? I'm on the host committee, for example, to go back and see if we can get some special opportunities for our students. Well, I, I think that's, that's really wise and, and thoughtful. And so the one thing that I would say is we've already today had a conversation. Uh, this is being recorded on the day that it was released. That's right. so, so I want people to know that we're on it. Um, we really talked about the fact that this is history in the making and that many of our young people and their families may want to avail themselves to this. 
But we're also mindful of the fact that we live in really funny times today where, you know, even the most uh, innocuous event sometimes invites violence. So we've got to be thoughtful about this and we've got to be thoughtful about, you know, uh, all of our families. You know, there are some families who just are going to want to leave the area in anticipation of what might be. There are others who are going to want to come in. There are even families who I, I believe are going to say, you know, I'm going to make my home be an Airbnb for the week because yes. I can make some money for my family. A lot of money. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, we're just going to be thoughtful. Um, but again, I, I think that there is an opportunity here for many of of our kids to learn something about how our government works. They're going to be able to listen to a dialogue between the right and the left, the conservative and the more liberal. They're going to hear from progressives. They're going to hear from a lot of people. So if we stage this well, and we have time to now, I think things can happen. You know what would be super cool? A contest throughout all K through 12, where at varying levels from kindergarten up to you know senior year, Folks get a chance to kind of like, you know, maybe put some thought into it, present their case for why they would like to do it or how it would have something to do. And then you guys select Shark Tank style, a small contingent to represent CMS to get some kind of access into and see something live. Wouldn't that be cool? I think that'd be a very cool thing to, to have our, some of our kids see history in the making. Yes. I think that'd be great. One other idea. And this is a big if because it would be contingent on Tarek and I both being reelected. And there's which, a very little chance one of us is going to make it through. I'm not going there. <laughs> but are we to be reelected and, and continue on with R&D and the QC? At that point, we might be to you know episode 100 and something. But Billions of um, No. Uh, maybe for one of the field trip opportunities for your students, we could do a live episode of R&D and the QC during Ooh. the RNC here in the government center chamber or somewhere. We should do it at a school too. We've done live ones at Red Ventures for their employees. Mm-hmm. We've done it with the CRVA. We did it at- uh, And as of a month uh, ago, Tark's allowed near schools again. Yeah. So it won't be a problem. Your jokes. Nobody gets them. They're not funny. <laughs> that one was pretty easy to get. So let's uh, let's switch gears. That's a good one. What, what do you want to talk about next, Larkin? So there have been two things that have kind of dominated the CMS news cycle of late um, over the last month or two. And want to give you the opportunity to to state CMS's position on them, but also give a little more clarity because, as is the case with a lot of the things we do here at the city, oftentimes some of the fears and uh, and anger and can be stoked by misunderstanding or incomplete information. And so, uh, I sense that that might be the case on on one or both of these issues. We'll start with the water testing that's been going on in the schools. Give us a a more full picture, uh, complete information on that. So last spring, we decided to voluntarily test our water fountains. We thought that it made a great deal of sense to go in to our older constructed facilities and begin to look at, you know, were there contaminants? Was there lead in the water? Were there other contaminants that were there? Um, We got back a series of reports. Some indicated that we had some concentrations of lead, but they thought that the, and again, it's, you know, you're you're subject to the the viewpoint of experts. And this was a third party independent consulting company. This wasn't CMS that said, if you change these fountains, you'll solve some of your problems. Or if you change this spigot, you'll change, you'll resolve your problems. So we did. And, but never did we think that there was a harmful exposure to any child. So we really didn't think, and I know I've been quoted a number of times on this, but it's true. At the time that it took place, 
we didn't think that there was anything that was really newsworthy. That's something that we should just go out and share. We thought we'd resolve the problem, been low-level kind of exposures. And I do understand. I mean, I've been to the CDC websites. I've thought to, talked to a lot of people that there's never been an amount of lead that's been said, oh, this is okay. And a lot of these were like mop sinks and things, right? I mean, they're not necessarily things people were drinking from. Absolutely. There were a few of the older uh, style cooler units, but most of them were back in a kitchen area, back in a custodial closet, things like that. We've now put all of that on our website. People can see that. Um, you know, there was also a little bit of back and forth between uh, some folks in the community who said we're trying to hide stuff. Really, we weren't ever trying to hide stuff. You know, I'm going to take responsibility as a superintendent. I didn't think initially it was newsworthy, so I kind of I said to our team, okay, do the right thing, put it on the website, let people see it, but let's not worry about it. And then the other piece I did say after talking to some folks is we're not going to put maps of our schools up, given all the other concerns we have with security, to pinpoint exactly where the fountain was because when you do that, you give somebody who might want to do harm a pathway to wherever they want to do harm at. So um, because I didn't get the data in a way that allowed me to put it out there, we were slow to do that. And, you know, for that, I take responsibility. Given a do-over, would you probably have gone on the far end of transparency and said, hey, FYI, we've we've identified some issues here. Uh, no child at any point was in danger, but we feel like we want you to know so so it doesn't seem like we're hiding something. Yeah, I, I mean, absolutely. If, if, you, if, you, if life gave you do-overs, we would say from the day we got the first results, we'd say here's what it is. But then people would have pressed us to say. Yeah, I don't think it would have changed. I don't, I don't think it really end, would. It would have still been a, a story. Yeah, I, but, but I think in, in, in this case, you know, what people have to understand is there's low levels of trace lead and other elements in the dirt outside in the air outside um it, it it is not as if we are you know somebody in one of the things said oh this is flint this is not flint this is not the systemic failure of a water system in a community this isn't the systemic failure of a school system this is a school system who actually tried to do the right thing made a couple of errors in judgment in terms of the transparency and you know here's where we are because to be clear charlotte water knocking it out of the park on water quality so it's definitely not a water system failure and if anything it's it's a disinvestment over the years in our schools we have older infrastructure that hasn't been invested and in, hasn't been replaced and upkept and so while it wasn't a, a threat to our, our school system if anything it should it should wake people up to the, the fact that we have aging infrastructure that needs to be reinvested in and schools are right at the top of that list. Yeah. When we, when we look at our schools, we're testing all the water in schools built before 1987 because that's the recommendation for us as a system to go forward. But, you know, I, I would argue that many people live in homes that were constructed before 1987. They have similar issues in their homes, but they're not doing the same kind of testing that we're doing. So I think it's a good thing on behalf of the school system. I think also it is um, a good thing for our community to know that we're invested in the environmental science of where their kids go to school. So speaking of uh, strategies for investing in our schools, I think that Larkin, that's probably tees you up for the next topic, right? Yeah. So the other big one that has dominated the news cycle as it relates to CMS has been the Municipal Concerns Act, which um, was in response to some action that has been proposed or taken, I guess, depending on how you define it, in the North Carolina General Assembly as it relates to municipalities' ability to create their own charter school systems. Um, so give everybody who maybe hasn't read everything on that a little bit of background and then talk about what CMS's response was and, and why that response was made. Do you have another show? We can. Another, <laughs> I was no. gonna say this is a this is a deep can't topic. Wait to hear you describe. This yeah, this one. is a deep topic. Super you have thirty seconds. No. <laughs> yeah. So you know, at the end, at the end of the day, I think um, there are a lot of people who are dissatisfied with the services they're getting from the school system. I, I don't. I don't. 
I don't shy away from that. We've got to get better. But I think what ended up happening is some folks wanted to have some leverage over CMS to ensure construction in their area. And so they invested in some conversations with a member of the, the delegation um, who went and kind of made their case before the legislature that said, you know what, if CMS won't build new schools here to ease overcrowding, we need the ability to create our own charter system and build our own schools. And that kind of caught fire in the legislature. It seems to me to be something that I think a lot of people who kind of lean towards a more conservative bent or right think, you know, competition's good, creating charters is good. So everybody got behind it. What happened here is four of the other, three of the other municipalities joined in with the Matthews Mint Hill group and passed this. Our board said, you know what, this is not good public policy. This doesn't make great sense. It's an opportunity that some are exercising with kind of a hidden agenda. I can't speak to what the agenda was other than what I've already stated, which is people wanted to have leverage to force the school board to do some things that it wasn't doing. Um, that said, our board also then responded and said, well, now that you have this capacity, now that you've asked for and gotten the ability to raise taxes to build schools, we'll concentrate our efforts elsewhere. And when you want to build a school, go ahead and raise taxes to build that school. And that's really a big part of what the reaction was initially. But honestly, if you really look at it, the board said some other important things. One, let's get together and talk as a group of interested politicians. Let's talk and see if we can't come to some common understandings. But they'd want to take that lever that was kind of held above them and say, you can't have this anymore. But see, on the other side, and that was, that was, a, that was a, good, a good political way to kind of go down the middle at it, and I think that's, that's what the superintendent should be saying. On the other side, some of the, and I'm a little disconnected from this, but some of the folks that were part of this or, or following closely would say they were simply looking, as you said, for the leverage, not to use it with no plans to use it, but simply that they needed that kind of leverage because maybe they felt a bit bullied by the school board at times. And lo and behold, they would say, I'm not making this argument, but this is their side, that, and look, they bullied us again. They went back when we were just looking to have it, to have a leverageable part of the conversation with no plans to use it. Oh, well, then you make a promise to never touch that, or guess what? You're punished, basically. I mean, can you see that side of it from those who have been frustrated? I can see that that's a side that people uh, ha have made. I, I, I absolutely get that. But at the end of the day, I think it, it's still bad public policy. Now, as a superintendent, I think that here's why I think it's bad. There was no conversation in the legislature about the changing of the way schools construction is funded. I think that is a huge issue. I think the issue of having a governance structure of operating a public school system or public school vested in a municipality changes the way schools are organized in the state of North Carolina. I think that should have had a lot more conversation. Mm. Um, so I, I think there are some bigger issues here. As a superintendent, I wish they would have explored. But I also I, I understand both sides of this. My job, though, I was kind of drive this car right down the middle of the road to make sure that we serve all kids well. And that's what I'm going to try to do. And I think that's really where my board is today. We want to serve all kids well. Yeah, and I think it's it's tough. I mean, the city has faced this, and, and Tark and I and a lot of the members of this council have been trying to mend fences that have, have been broken in in recent years. And I think that, you know, even maybe well-intentioned response was viewed by some as a poke in the eye to the legislature. And, and what we don't want for the school system or for the city or county governments is to have that animosity with the legislature that leads to, you know, school systems breaking apart and, and 
and breaking off on their own. And I, and I see the point of the school board. It's if the school board decides to start building a school in Mint Hill and then Mint Hill decides to also simultaneously start building their own school, you're meeting that overcrowding need in Mint Hill almost doubly where maybe you've not been able to then invest in Davidson who didn't adopt this or in parts of Charlotte that have overcrowding. I mean, one of the things we face with a lot of the rezonings that we deal with is people in Charlotte think that, that over that, you know, crowded streets, overused infrastructure, um, crowded schools, things like that are unique to them. They go, well, our, our school is overcrowded. Our roads are overcrowded. All of Charlotte's schools and roads are overcrowded because we have 60 people a day moving here. So it's, it's hard to prioritize where you try to meet that need first because that means someone else is getting it later. Well, and we were talking earlier about the infrastructure issues, right? The the, the water and, you know, the, the lines that come into a school, aging um, electrical infrastructure in a whole new environment where, you know, technology plays a, a, a new and better role. Um, if we spend dollars on building schools where we don't have to spend the money, then that's dollars that we don't have to invest in the capital of the existing stock that we already have. So, you know, I as a superintendent really have to be thoughtful about how we allocate our resources. I, I do understand that, you know, there are people who feel that they haven't been treated well over time. You know, I've been the superintendent here all of a year now. Um, I'm wow. not the one who put... That's hard uh, to believe. I feel like you've been here for like five years at this point. Well, some people, He probably feels like he's been here 10. <laughs> it's like yeah. dog years, seven years. But, but you know, I, I didn't place a portable on um, Elizabeth Lane, but there are 30 of them there. That clearly says to me that we should have had a different uh, mindset a different plan of action in place. We ought not have a school where there are 30 portables. But I don't know how to unwind that clock right now given available resources and the politic that surrounds what we have to do for each other. And the only way to build a new school everywhere at the same time is through some enormous tax increase that would have people up in arms. So we, we have to we have to work with the resources we have, and as is often the case, that there are never enough. Yeah. Who do you, who do you, who's your favorite person on the school board? <laughs> I, I love them all. Well, who do you hate most, would you say? I hate them all. So, so, <laughs> no, 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 no. We're going to just edit that little middle clip out, and it's going to say, who's your favorite school member? And you're going to say, I hate I them hate all. hate them all. <laughs> no. no, no. Yeah. Tarek likes to ask questions to people that he knows they can't answer. Yeah, so. yeah well, I, honestly, that for me, it's an easy one. You know, I, I work for the, the school board. You know, a lot of people think that I work for individual school board members. I don't. I'm appointed by the Board of Education, so it takes five of the board members really to direct me uh, to do something. Now, that doesn't mean I don't listen to individual. I absolutely do, because each of the individual board members have really distinct and unique viewpoints about how schools should be run, how we should operationalize some of the things. But the board doesn't operationalize anything. The board gives me broad policy guidelines, and then as a group, they direct my behavior if they think I need that. How terrified would you have been if you were in Marcus's shoes and looking down the barrel of six people under 40 coming onto your board oh. out of nowhere? Um, I probably wouldn't have been here. <laughs> no, you know, it's interesting because right away I had three new board members as well. And, and, and three board members, depending on how their position begins to change kind of the outlook and the outset. But I've been really blessed that my board is really, you know, we do have some little bit back and forth, but they've come together as a board. Um, and I just said to some folks earlier today in a television interview that, um, you know, that we received a CUBE award for our work around equity. That could not have happened if the board and the superintendent weren't working hand in hand together. So I think much like you and Marcus, as a we are working well together. Now the challenge between all of us is to get our agencies to work well together, to get the city and the so county true. working well with us. So true. 
So good. So listen, this was very informative and helpful. I think this, my hope is this becomes the start of where we start kind of bridging between city, county, and school board a little more. I mean, every day that we have a zoning meeting, we look at the number of students in the schools as a decision point and it's kind of we we all laugh not in jest that it's just so we don't cry yeah so we don't cry we don't we don't even know how to interpret that data so we we all need to work more closely i think so so let me share i think that's great because i heard a couple things one most people don't realize that the the biggest consumer of some of your police services is me i spend about i spend about six million dollars a year with you to buy SROs. But more importantly than that, you know, we just passed $922 million in bond authority to build new schools. It is our opportunity, if we work well together, to rebuild neighborhoods. Because why would you just build the school system and not change the streetscapes, the lighting? Why would you not invest in homes and properties? I think we have a great opportunity to change the face of this community, to address some of these things about economic mobility, to address some of the things about you know institutional racism that is at play. But we've got to do it together. We can't do it in individual stations. So you know, just the other day, you guys bought a piece of property from us. Um, Marcus and I had been having a lot of conversations conversations about that about you know what can we do to create more affordable housing and selling the double oats property was absolutely i think the right step in that direction and i thank both of you for your partnership in that and from uh the historic landmarks perspective that i, I like oh, to bring boy. to council here we go i've already told you I'll, I'll put another bug in your ear i've got my eye on some other surplus properties that you guys have that you're not utilizing for schools uh, that really are the cornerstones of the communities that they exist in and so to your point about building neighborhoods through partnership with the schools i think there's other opportunities adaptive there. reuse adaptive yeah. reuse if it begins with a w we're not going there <laughs> <laughs> okay i don't um, even get that joke we'll, we'll, we'll get it later uh, <laughs> that's all right people don't get most of our jokes either so you fit right in we bingo appreciate bingo. that's a smudgy joke yes we appreciate you coming on, and you're nice. welcome anytime. anytime. We look forward to having a, a stronger relationship between the city and the schools uh, so that we can continue to, to thrive and grow together. So. Dr. Clayton Wilcox, thank you for joining. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. Who it now?